Welcome back to another episode of Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. Man, I'm excited about today because I am welcoming an old friend to the podcast. And by old, I mean I've known him for a long time and that he's kind of old. He's about my age. We're both on the wrong side of 40, so kind of like me. But in addition to being my longtime bud, Sky Jatani has done some other stuff too, like write best-selling books and host a popular podcast called The Holy Post with his friend and VeggieTales creator, Phil Vischer. Uh, Sky also writes a daily devotional that I highly recommend. I've been a longtime subscriber. It's called the With God Daily Devotional, which you can sign up for on his website. He, it's sort of like a, a thinker's person's uh, devotional, if that makes sense. So like a lot of devotionals are a little sentimental and maybe a little sappy. This is different. This is a little more intellectual, a little more thoughtful uh, and very deep and just an awesome way to start your day. So I recommend that. Sky, welcome to the podcast. Well, Drew, thanks for having me back. Yes. Well, thank you for being on. And it feels a little weird, though, because usually I'm on your podcast and you're interviewing me, but now the shoe is on the other foot. Yes, the tables have turned. I'm a little worried because I've I've uh, I've given you some grief on our podcast over the years, so I'm worried you might exact revenge on me. You know what, Sky? I'm a Christian, so I have to return good for evil. Uh, I'm not going to let the power go to my head either. Okay, so I'm going to be very nice. Well, I'm uh, glad to hear that you you take Jesus seriously. <laughs> oh man, that was a perfect segue uh, into talking about your book because the title is. What if Jesus was serious? And man, I I am very familiar with this book because I remember sitting down with you at a restaurant. I think it was in Wheaton. And you pitched me this idea because you'd been writing these like little doodles, these kind of they're not cartoons, but they're kind of doodles that that convey some sort of theological message. And you'd been putting some online and they were really popular and getting a lot of interaction. And you had this idea. What about a a devotional that's got like, you know, one or two pages of writing, but then an accompanying doodle that would illustrate the point. And I remember thinking, that's a brilliant idea. And this book is just that. What if Jesus was serious? It's got like, I don't know how many, like 50 or something uh, doodles throughout the book and um, devotionals that go along with it. Uh, the subtitle is A Visual Guide to the Teachings of Jesus We Love to Ignore, which is awesome. Uh, where to start? Okay, so in the intro, you tell a story about teaching uh, on the Sermon of the Mount uh, to a class yeah. uh, at your church, and you were a little surprised by their reaction. Can you tell that story to our listeners? Yeah, this is, I don't know, 15 years ago, roughly. I was teaching a Sunday morning class to adults. I'd guess there were 30 or 40 adults in that class, and... All of them, most likely long-term church members, most of them probably grown up in the American evangelical kind of subculture. And on the first day of class, we read aloud the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And when we got to the end, we began the class. I simply asked, how many of you think that Jesus actually expects us to follow these teachings or to obey these commands? And I was kind of shocked when nobody raised their hand. <laughs> and 
and so then I started digging deeper and going, okay, well, then why why don't you think we should take these things seriously? And I heard all kinds of interesting explanations, uh, sort of logical gymnastics, contortions, theological excuses that people I think were regurgitating from other teachers they had heard over the years that were in one form or another excusing our obligation to these teachings. And it, but what shocked me was here were these lifelong Christians, and this is the kind of central teaching of Jesus, and they're all dismissing it as irrelevant, mm. impractical, uh, not serious, and giving, in some cases, robust theological arguments for why they were excusing it. But nobody in that classroom, at least on the first day, was thinking that we are actually expected to live out these teachings. And so, you know, jump ahead 15 years and you look at the state of our culture and the perception of Christians, especially evangelicals in our culture. And it dawned on me that I think a lot of the negative perception that Christians have today is rooted exactly in this problem, that we ourselves don't take Jesus and his teachings seriously. So why should anyone else? It's a essentially a, a complete erosion of moral authority. And you see that throughout our culture, but I think it's particularly devastating right now for for the church. Yeah, no, and you make such a great point. You you talk about how we, as Christians, sometimes think we're being persecuted because we take our faith too seriously. When sometimes it's that we don't take it seriously enough. Yeah, and I don't want to make it a completely black and white issue. I think there are instances where we are holding to. Uh, you know, orthodox Christian teachings that are unpopular in our society. You can think especially about issues of marriage and sexuality right now. There are certainly cases where that is unpopular sure. and, and orthodoxy is is causing that. But I think in a, in a lot of cases, those uh, those issues would be understood better or at least accepted better if when the culture looked at us, they saw us faithfully pursuing the other teachings of Jesus that in fact the culture affirms things like compassion and kindness and forgiveness and justice, um, uh, generosity. You can go on down the list of things in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not, and statistics would back this up, those are not things that are typically prevalent among church-going white American Christians today. And so mm-hmm. that's the problem is when you stand up and you shout, hey, we we want to defend a biblical idea of marriage. And then your critic turns around and says, well, do you believe in a biblical idea of loving your enemies? Well, no, not <laughs> no, no, that. Jesus wasn't really serious about that. Well, it's hard to then take you serious about a biblical view of marriage if you don't take these other things seriously as well. So we may accuse the culture of picking and choosing what they like about Jesus' teachings, but the same thing happens in the church as well. So true. And as I was reading that story um, in the book, I'm thinking of all of the sermons that I've heard that essentially may be well-intentioned, but are essentially explaining away things like even right. the rich young ruler in Jesus, it's going, oh, no, no, it wasn't the size of his wallet. It was the size of his head. Or when when you have to turn the other cheek, it just means you. it doesn't mean you have to take like some abuse from an enemy, it means that you have to have a good attitude in your heart or, you know, (laughs) at least minimizing or explaining it away. Now, what's the danger though, when we do that, other than you've mentioned, I mean, it does damage our witness to the, the outside world. Is there, is there something else at stake though, for our own transformation, our own walk with God, when we either ignore or minimize Jesus's hard teachings? 
Well, <laughs> it depends how dark you want to get right now, Drew. Um, <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. So two things come to mind right away, uh, and both related to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Toward that end, in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives some pretty jaw-dropping warnings about not doing what he said. And mm. you know, if he didn't intend for us to take this sermon seriously, that's a pretty odd way to end it. Right. <laughs> the whole right. emphasis at the end is, hey, really, you need to do this. So two things. Number one, the final words of the Sermon on the Mount are a parable, which is well known to many Christians because it was taught to us when we were children in Sunday school. And that's the parable of the wise and foolish builder. And it's often taught as a, a metaphor for Christians and non-Christians, right? The Christian is the person who builds their house on the rock and the non-Christian is the one who built their house on the sand and then the storm comes and the one built on the sand collapses. That is not what Jesus said. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, this is not a parable about believers and non-believers. It's a parable about people who claim to be believers, but don't do what Jesus said. He said, the one who does what mm. I have commanded is like the man who built his house on the rock. So that's number one. If you are claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but dismissing his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the person building your house on the sand and it doesn't end well. Now to go a step darker is just before <laughs> that part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the day of judgment and he mentions Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do mighty works and, and um, how does it go? Um, did we not prophesy in your name, perform many mighty works and um, I forget they the drive details. Out, anyway, drive out spirits and yeah, there's a whole yeah, list. Yeah, drive of, out yeah. spirits and demons. <laughs> so, I mean, these are people who, when you dig into the details of what Jesus is saying, number one, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And he's talking about the day of judgment. And to a Jewish audience, the only judge on the day of judgment is Yahweh, right? It's, it's God himself is the judge. But here Jesus puts himself in the place of the judge on the day of judgment to a Jewish audience. He's declaring his own divinity in a way. Oh, wow. I never thought and, of that. That's cool. And these people who come to him say, Lord, Lord, right? It's a, it's a declaration that you are the rightful judge. You are God. So these are people who believe Jesus is God. They have their theology right. These are people who, as you mentioned, they're casting out demons. And you can take that literally or figuratively, I don't care, but it, it, we can agree that these are people who worked against the forces of evil in the world. They were you know, social justice warriors or they were advocates of, of righteousness in the world, whatever you want to frame it as. And third, they, they prophesied in his name. That means they proclaimed God's truth in the name of Jesus. These are preachers and ministers. So their theology is good, their ministry is great, they're fighting evil in the world, and yet they show up on the day of judgment, and Jesus says, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. Yikes. That's a terrifying thought. And it makes you wonder, well, what, what was their shortcoming? If it wasn't their doctrine, it wasn't their ministry, what was their shortcoming? And he calls them evildoers or, or people of lawlessness, meaning they didn't actually submit to the things that Jesus cared about. Hmm. And that's what you find throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And immediately before that, he talks about good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. And the fruit he's looking for there are the things he's talked about in the sermon. Things like loving your enemies, 
being generous and kind, uh, not being full of deceit or lust or greed. And so you might have effective and powerful ministry. You might have great doctrine. You might even be a leader in ministry. But if you've not taken the deeper character issues of Jesus seriously, then you can't rightfully say you belong to him. And you might be deluding yourself into that because of your powerful and effective ministry or your brilliant doctrine. But that's not ultimately what what passes on the day of judgment. And the most terrifying word for me in that whole scene is that Jesus says, many will come to me on the day of judgment mm, right. with this delusion, right? So when I look out at the church in America and I see all these people who are claiming to follow Jesus, who have their doctrine, who are engaged in ministry, all that, but they don't take his teachings seriously in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going, oh my word, you are building your house on the sand. And unfortunately, there are a lot of teachers who will applaud you for doing precisely that. And we are digging ourselves into a deep, dark hole, and it's going to be a shocking day when we realize what fools we've been. So, I mean, th that's why I mean, how dark do you really want to get here? <laughs> because, you know, despite this being a book with a bunch of silly doodles in it, um, it's kind of juxtaposed with a pretty heavy and serious message that, that yes. Jesus intended us to take this stuff really, really seriously. Okay. I regret it. I, I didn't want to go that dark. Uh, <laughs> no. And, and that doesn't apply though to um, Christian authors and podcasters, right? Um, oh, of course not. Of course not. Uh, wow. No, that is, it's sobering, right? And that's, that's exactly right. And sometimes that the whole parable about the house on the sand, house on the rock, we think of it in terms of, okay, the Christians, you know, the ones that, that have their doctrine right, who, who've trusted Christ for salvation are the ones building their house on the rock and the rest of you are, are building your house on the sand. But you're absolutely right. Jesus is speaking to the in crowd there, uh, to the religious people. Uh, and that would be us. Um, let me put you on the spot here a little bit, which mm -hmm of these teachings that you talk about in the book of Jesus are toughest for you personally to accept or live out? Ooh, um, gosh, I think there's a lot of them. I hear without, a, I'd say without a doubt though, the hardest one is loving your enemy. Right. For sure. And even <laughs> especially <Dallas>. online. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially on social media. Um, Dallas Willard used to say when I, uh, he was asked, how do you know when you have reached maturity as a believer in Christ. And his response was, when you automatically, um, instinctively respond to your enemy with love. Hmm. And <laughs> wow. So, I mean, right there, I'm going, all right, I, I haven't reached that point yet. It doesn't, it's not my automatic impulse to respond to the person who's angry or hates me with love. But I think that's, that's kind of the, the graduate level class in discipleship. When you've yeah, reached that, you, you're, you're kind of on your way to your PhD. But um, that requires so much prior transformation to get to that point that mm -hmm. some of us think it's not even achievable. It, it absolutely is. It is possible to love your enemy um, and to do it even reflexively. So that for me is, it, it takes a lot of intentionality and um, discipline and effort to bring myself to that place. And it isn't, it isn't without a lot of failure for sure. <laughs> and, and to be clear, like when we say enemy, I'm not talking about like the person who's coming after me with a weapon or sure. uh, who's trying to destroy my life. Sometimes my enemy is my wife. Sometimes my right. enemy is my child. I mean, seriously, it's like an enemy is the person who is frustrating my will, right? Oh, who's getting, getting in the way of me getting what I want. And that's basically every human being in the world, 
right? <laughs> at different levels. <laughs> but the way you respond to that person who is frustrating your will and your in, your instinct to retaliate, to avoid, to distance, to shame, to whatever, uh, is contrary to the to the teachings of Jesus is no, our, our instinct toward that person should be to love them and seek what is best for them rather than ourselves. That's good. I think, yeah, sometimes there could be a tendency to just talk about enemies in terms of like, Oh, that people from a certain country or tribe or group that you rarely right. interact with if at all. Right. But <laughs> you're right. It's anyone who's frustrating your will. Uh, right. I totally get that, especially having small children, uh, every day they're frustrating my will. Uh, so that's good. Um, you have one, great doodle. Uh, you have lots of great doodles in this book, but one that I, I actually laughed out loud at, uh, and it's titled the new fruit of the spirit. And you have all these fruit of the spirit from Galatians five with one extra one added (laughs) that's called outrage. Why do you describe outrage as a false fruit? Well, I think we have made anger and outrage into a virtue and when I say we, not just the general culture, but I think even within the church, we have made anger and outrage a virtue. And we assume that in order to really affect change in the world or to be considered holy and righteous, we have to be angry all the time about some injustice that's going on or some wrong in the world that we want to make right. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for righteous anger. We see that in scripture. We certainly see that in Jesus. But Anger is not affirmed, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not affirmed as a positive attribute. It is universally Mm. in the Sermon on the Mount seen as a very dangerous quality that leads to terrible things. So especially in our social media age, in our uh, immediate knee-jerk kind of news cycle age, we we are tended to be attracted to very angry voices. And I've seen that temptation in myself. I have seen a lot of other people being drawn to it and it worries me. So mm. whether it's in our politics or even in our religious lives, we've, we've confused anger and passion. We think that they have to go together, that if you're not angry, you're not really passionate. If you're not angry, you must not really care. If you're not outraged, then you can't really be an effective um, instrument of God in the world to, to bring change. And I, I think that's a, a complete lie. And, very often our anger produces much more harm than than good. I think it was Dwight Eisenhower when he was president said, the quote's not exact, but something along the lines of, um, you, can't, you can't solve a problem with anger because with anger, you can't even think straight. Hmm. So <laughs> anger might be your knee-jerk reaction to something that's truly horrible in the world, but it you can't use that anger or... Um, ride that anger to the solution. At some point, you have to put it aside and pursue other virtues that will get you to that change and that solution that you want. But in our culture today, we are just so addicted to anger for various reasons that I think it's only making problems worse. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And it's so timely too, because we've seen and and we're seeing in our culture right now, real injustices, uh, you know, racism, these kinds of things that that do deserve righteous indignation. But if you if you just kind of ride the, the news cycle and the social media uh, waves of of 
of bad things happening, it demands that you're constantly outraged, constantly angry. And the, like you said, the voices that get the most attention on cable news, on social media are the ones that are always projecting this kind of white hot anger. Um, yeah. And that's just not sustainable. And, and anger might, again, as you said, and I said, it's, it's very justifiable in some cases, but if you keep stoking it, what you'll end up with is not justice. You'll end up Mm. with vengeance. And then the cycle just continues and continues and continues. So I'm all for those voices calling for justice. But unfortunately, when they are just saturated in outrage and anger, what they're actually calling for is vengeance. And that's not what the kingdom of God is about. So, so true. That's good. So, Sky, ultimately, you know, someone reads this book. Like you said, that that was a good um, qualifier because I think some people can be tempted to think, oh, this book has doodles in it. It must be kind of this playful, silly book. It is not. Uh, <laughs> it's um, I think it's kind of entertaining because the doodles are really intriguing and and uh, helpful. But it is a very serious book. What's your ultimate hope for people once they finish this book? What what do you hope that they take away from it? Well, I, I hope that they come to a different vision of Jesus and his kingdom. Hmm. I hope they, they, they come to an awareness that what he taught is incredibly powerful and relevant for the world. And rather than, uh, you know, a collection of interesting, provocative teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount, which may have been relevant 2000 years ago or, or some kind of ideal that he didn't expect us to employ that, that people would look at these teachings and realize, oh my goodness, like what he says about anger, that directly applies to 21st century contemporary American life or what he says about worry or what he says about fruit um, or what he says about who's blessed and who is like all these things are so, so relevant to exactly what we're facing in the world today that maybe I should take Jesus more seriously and, hmm. and not just jump over all those parts of the Bible so that I can read a couple of what Paul's teachings are about marriage or raising kids or how to manage my money, which is how a lot of contemporary Americans tend to view the Bible as just this manual for helping me manage my life better. But instead see the words of Jesus as a profound and relevant counterintuitive countercultural call for his disciples in the world today. If they walk away with that higher vision of Jesus and his wisdom, I'll consider that a success. If they actually believe that they're supposed to do it, then, you know, we've got a home run. (laughs) That's great. What if Jesus was serious? And I think the answer is, well, he was. Um, Listeners, if you've benefited from this conversation, I want to encourage you to head over to moodypublishers.com and grab a copy of Sky's book. What if Jesus was serious? A visual guide to the teachings of Jesus we love to ignore. And the good news is it's 20% off on the website right now, which I think puts it at a lower price point than Amazon. Uh, As you'll see, if you haven't read Sky's books before, he's a great writer And this book is powerful. It's a little controversial. I mean, you might not agree with everything, uh, but it'll definitely get you thinking and challenge you to really take Jesus's teachings, even the tough ones, more seriously. Uh, So again, head over to moodypublishers.com to receive 20% discount right now. Sky, last couple of questions I have for you. Um, We we do a segment on this podcast called The Writing Life. Um, First, this one's related to the book. Your past books... I remember like your book with had some doodles, just a couple throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, you went all out, right? I mean, you got 
uh, like I said, a doodle for every uh, devotional entry in the book. Why the doodles? Well, if at first it in my daily devotional with God Daily, which you mentioned earlier, I started a couple of years ago incorporating doodles from time to time, and mm. then I would share those on social media, and they were just getting a really strong response. And it, I'm a little slow on the uptake, but it was a reminder that there are a lot of people <laughs> who learn visually, and uh. that we are in, living in an increasingly visual society. That's what Instagram and a lot of social media is highly, highly visual. Um, and we, sadly, we also live in a world, or at least an American society, in which the average person reads less than one book a year. Hmm. So if you're wanting to communicate in a visual society where people are not readers the way they used to be, then these doodles seem to be a smart way to do that. So once I saw that it was taking off in my social media and I saw that people who subscribe to my devotional really appreciated it, I thought, well, let's take it to the next logical step and use these in a, in a book form and see if it doesn't help uh, communicate the message to people who don't typically pick up a 200-page book without any pictures or illustrations. Maybe that's a great way to, to teach these pieces. So that's what we're trying. I love it. Yes. And you're right. We're, 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 we, well, we've been shifting for a while into a very visual culture and that's true, but depressing. Like you said, most people maybe read a book a year, if any, I, I read some stat, I forget what it was exactly, but on how many people haven't read a book since high school or college. And I just mm -hmm. almost slipped into a deep depression. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I can't draw, so I'm doomed. I'm stuck with words. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I like how, what this book does, because it's not just the doodles, right? It, it, but it's great entry points for people that are maybe more visually oriented uh, to get them into your writing as well. Um, <clears throat> okay, last question for you. Are there any weird quirks about your writing process? You've written many books now. I mean, you write your devotional every day. You you are a full-time writer, essentially, in addition to being a speaker and a podcaster. But what can you share with listeners about your writing process that might surprise them? Oh, well, yeah, I have one, assuming... first of all, for you. You don't drink coffee. That's weird. I don't. No, I've never, <laughs> I've never had coffee. I've had a few cappuccinos in my life, but they're usually because the environment requires it. Like, right. you know, I'm overseas <laughs> somewhere and it feels like I, if I don't have a cappuccino right now, there's something wrong. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I don't drink coffee. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to, you know, if I ever convert to Mormonism, I figure I have that door open. Um, <laughs> so I, that's one. But the, I don't, you know, that's, you're assuming I have a writing process. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I tend to do my best writing very early in the morning or very late at night. Hmm. And the middle of the day is a bad time for me to sit down and try to write. That's one thing I've realized. The second thing is I think any writer has to, and this was true of me just when I was more of a preacher, when I was, you know, you're always you always have to have your eye on the world for ideas, illustrations, inspirations, whatever, and have a system of capturing those as they occur to you or as you encounter them. So phones have made that a little bit easier because everyone's got these devices in their pockets all the time. You can, you know, jot down a note or record something or whatever. But even before that, I've always carried a notebook with me or some way of capturing a thought or an idea if I'm in the car, even in the shower, like I used to keep a, a pad of paper near my bathroom so that I get out of the shower really quick and jot something down before my mind loses it. 
but you have to have some process or system for capturing that stuff. Um, and if you don't, you're going to, all your best ideas are going to be lost. You're like, Oh, I was thinking about that thing at breakfast and now I can't remember it. And so that has to be, uh, factored in somewhere. And then, um, the other thing I, a more recent tool that I've utilized is the app Evernote. Yes, yes. I've heard of it. I don't use it, but yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I use that constantly for everything, not just writing, but also it's, it's just a way of organizing ideas and content and keeping different kind of notebooks on different themes or topics. So if I'm doing a series in my devotional, like right now we're going through the parables of Jesus. So I have an Evernote folder that's just all about the parables and I'm dropping stuff in there all the time as I'm reading or have ideas. It just throws in there and it gives you a uh, an organizational tool that I can come back to later and go, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm working on the good Samaritan right now. Where's all that stuff that I had dumped in that bucket that I want to go over now. So there has to be some kind of organizational framework for, um, and anybody who's got any kind of creative calling that being a creative is great, but you can be scatterbrained and super disorganized. So you have to have <laughs> right. something that, that kind of corrals all those cats together. Yeah, no, that's good. And the funny thing is when you have a good idea, sometimes you think, oh, I'll remember this. It was so yeah. good. There's no way I'm no. going to forget this. You will. You absolutely yeah, Especially will. the older you get. Right. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> exactly. It is. Um, and so you need some sort of system. Okay, that's it. I'm downloading Evernote today. That That's that's the prompt I needed. Uh, that's awesome. Sky, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, once this this scourge, this pandemic passes, I look forward to hanging out and, and having a, well, I was going to say a coffee, but a tea or something with you uh, when I'm out in the Chicagoland area again. Uh, listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, please leave a, a review on Apple or Google Podcasts, uh, not just because it helps more uh, listeners discover us, but it helps prop up my fragile ego. So I really appreciate that. Uh, and Sky, thanks again for a great conversation. I appreciate the reminder that yes, Jesus was serious. This was his the Sermon on the Mount, his largest block of teaching, and we like to minimize it, explain it away, ignore it altogether. And this was a, a very good and sobering reminder not to do that, uh, not to ignore even his most radical teachings because they are a crucial part of our transformation and um, our relationships, our witness to the outside world. So thank you for that very. Uh, sobering and timely uh, reminder. And uh, to the listeners, thank you for listening. And until next time, keep reading. <laughs>